2: Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater.
3: People are becoming more and more comfortable with, the issue of people being different.
2: I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything.
0: Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 309, for March 26, 2009. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got a lot of great stuff on the program for you. We've got two musicals on the show. We're going to hear from Golden Boy of the Blue Ridge and Some Things Get Better with Age, and we're going to hear two songs from each of those shows. We've also got people involved with Miss Warren's Profession, the classic by George Bernard Shaw that's going up, and The Production Company, which specializes in bringing Australian plays to American shores. Their production of Love. We've also got Ken Davenport here with the producer's perspective and Marty Cooper on the positive side. So we got a lot of great stuff. So let's get rolling.
4: On the boards.
0: Prospect Theatre Company is back with a new musical, Golden Boy of the Blue Ridge, and this time, composer Pete Mills has gone the bluegrass route, and there's not a piano to be seen in this show. Uh, the The ensemble, uh, the musicians who also are in the ensemble, came in last night to actually record two songs to promote the show online and whatnot, and uh, I thought an interesting story was kind of how this show came together musically, uh, being as Pete Mills, as a composer, hasn't done bluegrass before or play a banjo fiddle. And uh, so we invited Eli Zoller, uh, who is the music director and the band leader for the production, and Melody Berger, who is in the ensemble and the fiddler for the production, to come in and chat about Golden Boy of the Blue Ridge. How you guys doing? Hey, doing good.
5: Hey, thanks for having us.
0: <laughs> All right. So I'm guessing the male voice is... Uh, <laughs> Eli can and guess. The fe- female voices, Melody. Well, before we before we start talking about the music, first uh, tell us a little bit about the musical. What is Golden Boy
6: of the Blue Ridge? Oh, Golden Boy of the Blue Ridge is uh, J.M. Singe's is Irish play, Playboy of the Western World, very, very controversial and now very, very popular play from the early twentieth century that he set in Ireland. But we set it in nineteen thirties Appalachia in West Virginia, hence the bluegrass and the twangy feel. Um, It's going up uh, thanks to Prospect Theater and thanks to Pete Mills' award-winning writing capabilities and uh, we're really excited for it. It looks like it's going to be real promising.
0: Now, I know the show's running from April 11th to May 3rd, but what is it about the story? What made it so controversial when the original Playboy of the Western World came out?
6: Well it's the story about a young man who kills his father and is embraced by a population for having done so. Not necessarily in the early twentieth century, something that you would necessar- that you would you know think would be oh well, that's very interesting. Let's talk about that more in public on stage. More.
0: Let's make a musical. Sure, no, <laughs> I mean,
6: you've <laughs> gotta love the past hundred years what it's done for uh, for PC in uh, the world of music and musical theater. But also, it's very controversial because it stems with the ideas of morality and what is moral and what will people accept and how far will people go to get what they want from literally anybody and. Uh, that's something that's touchy no matter what era you're in. And then they're singing and dancing and fiddles and banjos. Which is also <laughs> very controversial in some societies. So we love uh, we love toying with everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I was, ta- I was talking out front with Pete You know, when we were recording yesterday about how he went about arranging this. I go, how did you, you know orchestrate this? Musical theater is very traditional-minded and everything has to be written out. And one of the reasons I invited you in both of you to talk is he had said, I didn't. He just wrote out charts, which is more of a pop, you know, and... You know, regular music, you know, sort of, pardon the expression, regular music world. And so what was the process of kind of putting together the music for the two of you guys and the rest of the band?
5: Well, um, the music's great, first of all. That should be said. We're
0: Um, going to hear the the songs we recorded last night.
5: Oh, good. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm... I think I'm the bluegrass consultant for the show.
0: <laughs> uh, first of all, how did you find bluegrass musicians who can? Because the band members are also the cast as well, part of the cast.
6: Yeah, well, it was all part of the casting. And, and so in New York City, where do you find <laughs> bluegrass musicians who can sing
0: and act? Oh my God, were there? Was do you have all of them?
5: Right there's <laughs> a there's actually a really thriving bluegrass community here in New York, mm-hmm. which is sort of unexpected. Um,
6: thriving where?
5: Exactly. Um, that's the best. Well, that's,
6: that might be the best part. You know, mm-hmm. it's there's so little left that is quote unquote underground nowadays. <laughs> but never has underground been so uh, out in the open. And so, it's such as the same for the bluegrass scene.
5: Um, if people are interested in checking out the uh, thriving community, they can look at nycbluegrass.com or check out the weekly bluegrass jam at the Grizzly Pear on uh, McDougal Street between West 3rd and Bleecker every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock. But, yeah, as far as um, coming together as the ensemble, I think musical theater and bluegrass have a lot in common that uh, has only been explored a little bit so far. Um, Because, first of all, they're both very much about performing live and being aware that the audience is out there. And not pandering so much, but, like, being a little bit bigger than life, and uh, I think, uh, yeah, it goes well together Mm at the end.
6: (laughs) It It takes advantage of having musicians, live musicians, actual musicians in the space with the audience. You know, here's a nod to all those Broadway people out there who think that's not necessary anymore. It's such a huge advantage, and it speaks to live performance, and it brings the emotion of the music to the stage which is really exciting. And the best part about this is having, you know, with Peter Mills doing the music, it's funny you mentioned how, you know, there's no piano in sight and Pete brought us on because he doesn't have any bluegrass experience. I looked at these charts for the first time when I sat with Pete and with Kara, the director. I would never have guessed that he could not write bluegrass I, I, would, I would drop names that uh, you know, bluegrass names or bluegrass I didn't mean so much that he couldn't write bluegrass Oh no, as, as that
0: he didn't play guitar he didn't play bandolim he didn't play any and that's what
6: people, you would yeah. never guess you would think that he wrote this with every idea in mind I was almost oh. wondering for the first minute what I was doing there and it's, it's so complete as it is that really I think the best part was just coming in and you know doing what we do with it you look. You look like you have a. Different well, it's take it's not
5: actually bluegrass <laughs> so yeah, much. Yeah. It's not like it's it's really awesome and it's some of the most fantastic musical theater I've ever heard. He is so brilliant. His uh, his melodies are catchy and the lyrics are incredibly witty and all the songs you're just like yeah, right on, good job. Um, but for bluegrass purists, it's not bluegrass and obviously it's not like. Yeah. Like we just yeah. said, the the musical is set in the uh, Prohibition time. And bluegrass itself wasn't invented until the 50s, so it would be a little anachronistic if it were that sure. way. Like, at this time, they would have, like, the earliest incarnations of, like, the earliest kernels of bluegrass music, old-time music, some Irish and Scottish fiddling going on in the woods, like mountain...
6: A lot of old-timey folk and stuff like that.
5: Yeah, country blues, that sort of thing. But what Pete has done is... He's written, like, amazing musical theater that has been inspired by these traditions. So he's really—it's sort of like a hybrid that he's created all on his own.
6: It tells the
0: story. Mm-hmm. That's what it does best. Well, let's take a listen uh, before we go on to one of the songs that we recorded last night and already got all mixed up and stuff, got the full band on it. Um, do you want to set up this first song that we're going to play?
6: Which one do we listen to? <laughs> Which one do you want to play first? Uh, let's let uh, let's do Gris for the Mill. We were just talking about uh, Prohibition times and— mm. You know that so this is
5: about making corn liquor
6: it, it is indeed it's also <laughs> it's about making corn liquor, you know doing something that was controversial back then, of course keeping with the theme of things that were not necessarily uh, talked about on the surface of society, but also this song talks about uh, how one specific character hazel takes advantage of what's around her in ways that weren't necessarily what society would consider fair or fair play and um it makes again. going with Pete's amazing lyricism. He just brings out the uh, uh, such witty lyrics to tell the story. And Melody's got some great vocals and fiddle lines in here. That yeah, that's what right. I'm talking the, the about. Two songs, <laughs> the, t- the two songs Pete chose to
0: cut due to you know all sorts of weird equity rules mm-hmm. means that well, he had to use non the non union performers in the cast to do the demo because he can't. There's no, there's no way Equity won't even let him pay anything pay any amount to use the Equity people I always like to bring that up yeah. you know and mm-hmm. rub it in Equity's face they gotta do something about that cause, uh, but good for you guys No, we're get the extra exposure so, so proud yeah. of all the music <laughs> like, it's, it's,
6: it's only been so long that everybody's been working together and it's been sparse at that but the, the, the music that we've been able to produce in the sort of amount of time we've been working voluntarily it's, it's so exciting it's mm-hmm. great stuff All right, well, let's take a listen to Grist for the Mill.
5: It takes a running crick, a turning rock, a heavy sack of corn, and a water wheel. You got to grind it down, crush it down, go against the grain, to make a meal. Off in the hollers, there's all sorts of Backwoods men fly their train The law may get them if it finds out what they're doing But if it does, still the
4: miller will get paid
5: You take them fine, fine
0: get the answer yet to the question I was asking earlier and and now that we've heard some of the music I think it's a good time to reiterate it. You didn't get chart I mean you didn't get these are the notes you're supposed to play this is a specific rhythm so how did you guys as a band go about coming up with the arrangements?
5: Well Pete has all the bass lines written out and of course he played piano with us for the first few rehearsals so you kind of get like a sense of what the structure of the song is and um, everyone in the bluegrass band knows what their part is, basically. It's an oral tradition. You know, you're not used to having written out music. So, like, oh, you want me to do the fiddle part? Cool. Got it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so.
6: And when you have gifted musicians of this, genre, of this genre, which we do, as you just heard, pretty much there's almost an instinct that you get when you start playing with one another. you start. It's not just about playing, but it's about listening. And you just get a really good idea of... Uh, Pete and I like to use a, a metaphor of the bouncing ball. You know, uh, there's always a focus in music, even in ensemble music. One instrument typically has a focus. At one point, it's fiddle. Then again, it was banjo. Then again, there was this really catchy bass line. Uh, Bluegrass does that in a real fun way, and it's almost natural. Mm-hmm. So. That's part of the process as well as just listening to each other and finding out where that goes. And for a show like this, then you lock it in because you want to keep producing that same thing uh, for audiences that they keep coming back.
5: And it's also really melody-based, which helps with making up your
0: own part. It's all about you. Oh, yeah, all about me all the time. What,
5: what?
0: <laughs> I've been waiting for that one. I've been waiting.
5: <laughs> no one's ever made that joke before. I play music and my name is Melody. never happened.
0: <laughs> well, well, in addition to the fact that you said it's kind of bluegrass meets musical theater and all that, um, I understand that there's quite a mixture of in terms of Eli, you, for instance, example right here. Eli, you have a pretty strong theater background, I understand. But Melody, you, I, I understand you're not... You haven't done a lot of theater before? or
5: No, I did um, years ago. I did a, a ton of theater. And I used to teach musical theater, performing arts camps and stuff. <laughs> but, no, it, it's been a while. I have not been in a musical in seven years. So this is really exciting for me. I'm stoked.
0: Okay, I've gotten all my information wrong about you because I was also told that you tour
5: well, I'd like to. I could.
0: <laughs> you, <laughs> Anyone out
5: there good, need a you,
6: fiddler? There's
0: a plug. plug. <laughs> You've you got good rumors floating on around about good.
5: it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> like, she totally tore with the Dixie Chicks, I think. I mean, I'm not sure, but. Um. <laughs>
6: And uh, it's nice being from the opposite level here. Uh, You know, I love playing bluegrass. I love jamming around. And I've been, uh, you know, steeped deep in the theatrical community and doing musical theater for so long. I've been dying for a project like this. When I actually got the email from Pete and Cara saying that they were interested in bringing me on as music director, they apologized for not being a theatrically based uh, gig, not being acting, not being singing. And I I laughed. When I read that at first, because I've, you know, this is such a great opportunity and such an awesome proposal to to come in and be a part of a show when you're not involved in that type of stuff. And now I get to jam out with the band and I get to, I get to it's almost like gigging. It's so much fun.
0: How much responsibility do you have as music director for, like, you came up with all your parts themselves. I'm certain at a certain point they had to gel into, like, an actual arrangement and not just a jam.
6: Uh, And how much, how much did you stick your nose into that? Well, we're at an interesting (laughs) point right now in the process of developing the show where my role is sort of in the middle. Uh, Literally during one rehearsal, I'll at one point be just as much a member of the band listening to what Pete has to suggest and what Pete has to say, and then I turn my ears on to listen for the gel uh, uh, for the group when Pete has to concern himself with how is it working uh, dramatically and directorially with uh, the work that the actors are doing. So we're almost at a back-and-forth process right now that's working quite nicely, and we're really excited about it, Um, but my responsibility, I think, lies, as a whole, will lie less with developing the music and more so with bringing everybody in tight as a unit and playing consistently and with an even flow as a group, as a uh, as an ensemble.
0: All right, well, let's take a listen to the second song yes. that you guys recorded. Um, now, I know
6: this one definitely needs a little bit of explanation. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> it does. Um, uh, this is Wanted Man, and Wanted Man is uh, the quick, Uptempo very exciting. Uh, let's call it a um, gossipy lament of three girls pining after our, our young hero, who um, has just realized how girls might like him, in, due to his looks and due to his personality. But our three girls are played by three guys, and it's it's a joke, but it's also it's also just and so well played. And it's
0: three of the band members. It, <laughs> is, it is.
6: It's uh, three of our, our excellent musicians. Um, Banjo,
5: bass, and guitar.
6: Playing and picking and singing themselves and putting on these phenomenal characters. It's Uh, sort of like
5: the patter song for the show. Pick a little, talk a little. almost. Yeah.
6: All right, let's
0: take a listen to Wanted Man.
6: Well! It's just about the biggest bit of gossip that we ever did. Hear about, hear about, all of us are near about. Ready to bust, because we just got the news. And we hurried over here without a second to lose. Had it from the winter. There's a kid around the hovel who polished off his pipe with the tap of a shovel. We're trying to be subtle, but we're dying for the scuttle. But now,
7: I've not heard about a bird who we are watching for. Him. I said, You keep your hands off, pole cap.
8: Oh,
6: it isn't very often that we happen to be having a spot homicide. Everybody's got. I'm a so rational, a fashion will be full of with a fashion, He'll lavish upon the lady love of his life me, if I could be the man's wife Settles a spat with a flat of a spatula Then she'll agree, he's a fine kind of bachelor One humdinger of a swinger of a
7: deadly tomb He's a wanted man, why?
0: I'm gonna look into you for this this next question. Okay. Uh, for those people who are interested in exploring the bluegrass scene, I've heard a lot of bluegrass, but I can probably, like, I'm sure many people, name Alison Krauss, and that's probably <laughs> where my artist knowledge of where I can just like pull a name out of thin air start you know starts and stops. So maybe uh, a couple people who maybe inspired the band, or when you think about the arrangements, or you know, who are some of the other notable artists in the bluegrass scene.
5: Well, if you want to get really traditional, you should go to the father of bluegrass himself, Bill Monroe. Get a best of Bill Monroe. I've okay, heard of eat. him.
0: Can't pull, <laughs> couldn't pull his name out of a hat with it, but now I know.
5: Yeah, and, uh, and Flatt and Scruggs, um they they used to play with Bill Monroe and then they, you know, sort of did their own stuff and uh Scruggs is the the guy who invented the three-finger roll banjo style that is uh, part of bluegrass, and uh, yeah, I think that in general, the term bluegrass has come to mean a, bit, a, a little broader like, people kind of more, hear that and they more think... More
0: Americana, I think, is a, it's kind of broadened into a little...
5: Yeah, exactly. People are like, roots, Americana, bluegrass. You put that tagline on and people are like, oh, there are going to be banjo and fiddle in this show. <laughs> I will like it. <laughs> you know, it's going to be acoustic. You know, people are going to be sitting on their front porch playing music together and singing really great three-part harmony. And I think that's great. So, um, either you're, like, totally obsessed with, blue gra- bl- 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 with mm-hmm. bluegrass, too, <laughs> or... Um, you just want to come and hear a really great show
9: <laughs> at
6: the, at the that same has point.
5: elements of it. Bluegrass inspired.
6: There are also some great contemporary artists that are using bluegrass, either whether they call themselves legitimate bluegrass players or they're just mm-hmm. using bits of it. You know, you mentioned before the Dixie Chicks; they certainly bring in elements of it. But also great, great, really inventive artists like, uh, like Nickel Creek and Bela Fleck are just bringing it to a mainstream, mixing it up with groups like uh, like rock groups like Fish. Or like uh, Warren Hayes. it's, it's, it's yeah, There's it's a whole new grass Even new Robert man. Plant
0: has decided he's a bluegrass man. Absolutely. <laughs> why, and why not? Led Zeppelin
5: guys, have, they've, they've uh, gone ahead and sponsored uh, old time groups. Like it's, there, there's a lot of uh, give and take.
6: That Jimmy Page acoustic stuff that he did in the early to mid-70s was some of my first inspirational uh, 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 upbringings to bluegrass. I hadn't really gotten into it until I was much older.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we call it new grass, you know, when people are like, okay, well, I really like these bluegrass songs. I'm going to put my own spin on it, which is what Pete has done, and it's really great.
6: Oh, yeah.
0: So Golden Boy of the Blue Ridge is uh, from April 11th to May 3rd. Uh, Website is prospecttheater.org. That's theaterer.org. Anything else we need to know about getting tickets or anything?
5: You should, because it'll be awesome. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Major drought out there for interesting, uh, interesting art that's being put up in New York just you know, due to one circumstance or another. This is going to be there, and this is going to be great. What theater is this going to be playing at? Uh, this is at 59E59. E that is both the name and the address, 59 East, 59th Street, Conveniently Manhattan. Conveniently
5: enough.
6: How about that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well,
0: Melody Berger and Eli Zoller. I thank you guys so much for coming down. Did I get the they both right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> laughed when I said it, so I thought, oh, I missed something up there. I'm notorious for that. So uh, <laughs> well, thanks for coming down, and uh, best of luck in your production. Thank you. Thank you.
4: On the boards.
0: Well, scandals involving high-powered brothels and high-priced prostitutes have certainly been all the news the past couple of years. And there is a play by a promising young upstart playwright that we think just might have a chance at addressing some of these issues. It is called Mrs. Warren's Profession, and the playwright is up-and-comer George Bernard Shaw. Yes. <laughs> and we have uh, Play... R- uh, no, sorry. And we have... No, we didn't...
9: <laughs> <laughs> we didn't we bring have the him today. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was too busy.
0: And, and I couldn't dig out my Ouija board. But we do, <laughs> we do have Joy Franz, who is Mrs. Warren. And we have the director, Kathleen O'Neill, who is also artistic director for Boo Arts Theatre Company, where Mrs. Warren's profession will be happening starting April 1st. How are the two of you doing? Just, Just
9: great. Take. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Right. And did you say where it's happening? No, I haven't yet. Oh, well, it's happening at 177 McDougal, and that's just off 6th Avenue between Waverly and 8th
0: Street. We'll remind people at the end. Maybe all they'll right. have more. They'll probably want to figure out where it is more after they hear what this is all about.
4: Oh, I hope so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I we didn't get a chance to introduce so people can connect the voice with uh, the, the name. You want to introduce yourselves really quickly?
9: Yes. I'm Joy Franz. Mm-hmm. I'm Kathleen O'Neill.
0: I'm the director. (laughs) All right. So uh, first off, for those of you who aren't familiar with George Bernard Shaw's canon of work, uh, maybe you could tell us briefly what uh, Mrs. Warren's profession is about for the listeners.
10: Well, George Bernard Shaw wrote it in 1893 in reaction to a lot that was going on in society, and he wrote it specifically for women. It's an exploration of the current society's, at that point, hypocrisy regarding prostitution. And more importantly...
0: Because attitudes have changed completely.
10: Uh, well, <laughs> yes. Well, but, but, but also, it's, it's about um, the hypocrisy involved around it. And
9: women, how women could work and how they earn... You know, no, how they could not work. There was really they, no other employment open to them, you see. well, they, Go ahead. Bar, mm-hmm. Barmaids. I mean, they could do very low class work, but they could never
10: acquire property. They could never acquire money. They just couldn't. And so prostitution was a way of at least getting some cash, provided it was handled in a certain way. Not much has changed. And it was <laughs> legal in England. Oh, it
9: was? Yes. It was legal and also, which is kind of like it is today, the women had, would be uh, examined for health reasons and stuff like that, but not the men. Now, isn't that odd? So it's just like today. It's like women are put into jail, or for prostitution. But what about the men?
0: The gigolos. Or the
9: gigolos. <laughs> uh, the Johns. Poor A. Rod just got thrown that one at him.
10: But I, I think it's it's so current, and that's what's really shocking about it. You know, you can look at the language that is used, the issues that are addressed, and not much has changed. You can say, oh, women have a much better advantage today. They can get education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is true.
0: But they can still make more money prostituting.
9: No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, class issues.
10: Class
9: issues, right.
0: Yeah. So when did you pick the show for your season? Was this after all the Elliot Spitzer stuff and all the, you know, I mean,
10: I've wanted to direct this show for 10 years. And the reason I haven't is because I hadn't found an actress that could play Mrs. Warren. Oh. And, and, and that's straight. And then I had worked, seen Joy's work and then worked with her on another play. And I said, this is a woman that can do Mrs. Warren's profession. And we had talked about it last year, actually. And there was another play that we were going to do. And we made a decision not to do that one and to do Mrs. Warren's profession. And we were just fortunate enough to be able to get the caliber of cast that we needed as well to do the show. So it was just serendipitous. It's working
9: very well.
0: So, Joy, what attracted you to this uh, role?
9: Oh, my heavens. <laughs> 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 it's, I think it's one of the greatest roles uh, for a woman to have the opportunity to do. And I'm so grateful and, and excited about doing it. It is an enormous challenge, <laughs> and I absolutely love it. I did a reading of it uh, last summer in uh, New Harmony, where I uh, was doing Othello so I'm having the opportunities to do Shakespeare and then reading Shaw and I went oh my god give me Shakespeare (laughs) (laughs) because Shakespeare has a rhythm and actually leads you to the next point where Shaw has really there's so many different levels that you know she it's like what is it it's not abstract but it's it's another word for it. Linear? No, it's not
10: linear. Not linear. Oh. It's what no, no, else? It's not linear. It's it's it's. Opposite. Opposite. Mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's uh, I know the word she wants, and then it's not coming to uh, my mouth. We're uh,
0: playing it's, password. It's not it's linear. Rude. It is playing <laughs> password
10: exactly. <laughs> the root is
9: especially if we're doing Shaw. We should have a few more words at our fingertips right now. She's giving but you not one,
0: linear. It's
9: dense. It's <laughs>
7: very dense,
9: but it's this, changing is... uh, different uh, points of view within one or two sentences it's just on a drop of a dime there's a different emotional change and what she's saying one moment doesn't really relate to the next thing that comes out of her mouth it's abstract in a way would you say abstract thinking I think it's more stream of
0: consciousness stream of consciousness I think it's very stream of consciousness ding 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 $500 I'll take it so, <laughs> Kathleen, choosing this, does Boo Arts do original shows as well as classics? Yes. The what do you find the biggest <clears throat> differences in promoting and, and marketing each, the newer shows versus the classics?
10: Well, I think with a classic, you tend to have it, at least the name recognition for the playwright. For instance, I've said to many people, you know, I'm doing Mrs. Warren's profession, and they went, oh, I've heard of that. I read it in high school. <laughs> and then I'm talking to people that high school is 40 years ago. They
0: obviously weren't from the South. That's
10: right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry. No no, 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 no.
4: We
10: get it. We get it. With with the newer, more modern playwrights, it uh, there tends to have a sense of more appeal to a younger audience. And that's what I want to do with the classics. I want to make the classics more appealing to a younger audience. and And when something is as current as this and the issues are still being discussed and the – the tensions between parent and child are still there. The, the hypocrisy of the society in terms of economics. It's just, it, it's what the kids are living today. We're all living it today. And, and so I think it's always interesting. We think we reinvent the wheel. You know what, we don't. We don't, we, we just kind of paint it over and bring it back again. And I think it's important because maybe we'll really start looking at what the issues are and not what the labels are. It's really hmm. fun.
0: It's fun and joy you're a Broadway veteran you know of many many shows uh Pippin in well I've the been woods around for a
2: while <laughs> many
0: things, and you from the biggest stages to I know you just completed a show at forty fifth street theater you know yes. what do you find the biggest difference as an actress playing on a large you know stage for several thousand people to a very intimate you know Showcase, or you know, uh, is this a showcase production? Technically, under the code. As an actress, what do you find the differences between the two? Do you, how much do you adjust your technique to each?
9: Well, I would say the major difference is money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you so you don't paid. act
0: as well
4: for you the get lower money. Oh, oh. Yes, you do. No, yes, you everything do. is still there. Everything I'm is doing. the same.
9: I mean, the, it's the same. Oh, if you're acting on Broadway or off, off Broadway. Or in a showcase uh, even in a reading I mean you have to say have the same intentions the same emotional life to, uh, to speaking the words with depth and meaning so I don't see that there's a huge difference
10: I, I guess I, if I can step in, I think the difference is, too, is there isn't the amount of rehearsal time. Oh, well, that's, that, oh, that's that, extremely important that, right there, besides I mean, the it's money. a huge, huge difference. I mean, even more so, I think, because just as the actors are getting warmed up, I mean, when you think of what an actor does for this kind of role, and, and I'm talking any off-off-Broadway show, in this, excuse me, showcase, in the
9: space of four weeks, and they still have to deliver. But wait, it's not just four weeks of rehearsing. You're exa- you're rehearsing from six thirty you what, twenty hours? How many hours are you really? About twenty-four a week. Twenty four hours a week. Where on Broadway or in a major show, you're rehearsing eight hours a day. Of course with mm. lunch break. So and that's five days that's six days a week. Mm. With this rehearsing Wednesday through Saturday Saturday only. So you've got from 6.30 to 10 at night. And then on Saturday it's from 11 until 6. So you're talking about a lot of work that you have to do when you're not in rehearsal because you're not really getting rehearsal time which is really a big challenge to fulfill. (laughs) And like you said the time you get, like we have no previews we have 12 performances only. That's a, that's a preview time on Broadway. Or yes, longer. Yeah or, lo-
0: yeah, or longer. Or <laughs> longer,
9: like for some shows that what <laughs> previews for three months. <laughs> but, but so there's not enough there's time rest, uh, constraint for you to be able to really get into the role and uh, have it in your body and to have it organic. You have to do a great deal of work within that short amount of time. So it's a, it's a huge challenge. And it, it's exciting at the same time and keeps you certainly alert, that's for sure.
0: Now, one thing, I actually discussed this with, you uh, several, a couple of years back with uh, somebody, but you have a very, I can tell just even in the booth, you have a very well-trained stage voice, I, I can tell. what Just on a totally unrelated take. What's your take on all the miking? Oh. <laughs>
9: oh, i tell you. The first time I heard miking, it was like, oh, is that voice from a recording or is it coming from that person down there? And I thought, oh, I, I really didn't like it at all. Now, that's what I like about plays, which most of the time, you don't have any mics. And I thought, for Broadway, just singing, well, you can have the a wonderful beautiful s- small sound and then it's you're mic'd and all of a sudden then you, you know you've got this huge voice or whatever I don't know it's personally I don't care for it <laughs> you know but of course if you're in a 10,000 seats
4: you know <laughs> you, you real
9: you will need it like mm-hmm. playing at the muni or at uh, you know starlight theater you have to have mics
0: do you find again this is, do you find it harder in the past 20 years or whatever since Miking has been thing that do you find more actors who are unprepared to even give what it takes vocally even in a small theater to communicate with an audience
9: yes yeah because to have that I it, see Kathleen nodding <laughs> <around>. <laughs> they aren't trained the not, actors aren't trained not trained enough it's like i would i try to keep away from projection because it feels like oh i've got to project it out, you know, mm-hmm. but it's energy. That's right. It's the energy in what you're saying and you can do it with a whisper and that person will hear you out there. But I mean, so I think that's... I think you're absolutely sort of, right.
10: It isn't, you know, people say think it's about yelling. It isn't. It, it really, and this is something we're discussing because of the way we're staging the play and that is if you're two feet from somebody or twenty feet from somebody, you need to be able to accomplish the same things. And that really is in your voice and your energy. And, and you, you can see it on a Broadway stage. You can see it in any... It doesn't have to be Broadway. I mean, there's wonderful off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway theaters like ours. <laughs> and, but I think, I, I think that it really is about energy and knowing exactly what you're going for. And if that doesn't work, you try something else. And, and, but I also know in a training process, there are muscles that have to be worked. You know, it's like going to the gym every oh, day. Oh, yes, you
9: have to warm up your and voice, whether you're singing or, or doing a straight play. I know when I was doing uh, Othello. Oh, by the way, I, I got to do uh, Amelia and Brabantio. That was Desdemona's father. I had, I had a blast doing that. But every day I was working on my voice, warming the voice up because when you're having to do those words mm. you have to have a lot of energy and if you're angry you, I mean well, like I said just, you have to warm your voice up to do um, it, I'm sorry I'm comparing it to being a runner that they work of uh, a dancer oh. i mean just because you're not singing or doing any kind of an exercise you have to exercise the voice It's the same, it's just one
10: of the things an actor has to do. Here in New York, you have to go to auditions, you have to read certain papers and trades, and you have to, it's in the
9: have-to list, as far as I'm concerned. And research, knowing what the history of the time when the play was being, was taking place. So there's just a lot more uh, details than... What I think most people think of, I know when my mother uh, thought when I was doing theater and she went, "Oh, well, that's nothing you because it makes you happy, you know." Mm-hmm. But when she came to New York and she saw me do Pippin, and she said to me for the first time, she said, "Oh, I really understand now that it's really work. It's not just play or something that makes you happy only. It's work.
4: Mm-hmm.
9: It's good work." It's wonderful work. It's exciting work. It's exhilarating. It keeps me alive. It's it's my passion. I love it so much. It was actually, I think it's actually my first love.
2: Mm-hmm.
9: I think it is.
0: How many how many loves have there been since?
4: Let's <laughs> <laughs> not go
9: into that, shall we? That's,
10: that's another show. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let me turn into Barbara Walters here.
10: Uh, I <laughs> okay. Hopefully.
0: So, Mrs. Warren's Profession opens April 1st, and it runs through... The 18th. And where can people go to get more information on the show and how to get tickets, et cetera?
10: Um, they can go to the website, which is www.boo-arts.com. com. right. And it's at it's uh, playing at Manhattan Theatre Source, which oh. is 177 McDougal Street. And that's Wednesday through... Saturday evening, and I'm trying something different this time. Wednesday and Thursday nights, I'm going to have a seven o'clock per- curtain instead of eight, because I find that when people have to work, and you're going to go to a two-hour show, and blah, 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 blah. so it starts at seven. Have a glass of wine by nine. You can leave at nine thirty. Be home in bed by ten. Fifteen. <laughs> with, with,
0: uh, home in bed with a high
9: price <laughs> prostitute
0: by ten.
4: <laughs>
9: <laughs> There's something to that for some people. You know, I forgot it? to just add one more thing, Michael, okay. about preparation for a play. Like this play is English, so it's having a PR, uh-huh. uh, English accent, and also Cockney. So I've had to really work very hard with uh, a dialect coach who's a wonderful dialogue coach, is G.R. Johnson. And so it's not only just the words and what your intention and what you're saying, but you have to do it in the dialogue, your dialect. So it's quite exciting. <laughs> All right. She's having a wonderful time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and go have a wonderful time at Miss Warren's Profession. Again, thank you so much, Joy Friends and Kathleen O'Neill, for stopping down and chatting about the show. And best of luck with your run. Thank,
9: thank you. you so much. Thank you. <laughs>
8: The Producers Perspective. Hey, everybody. It's Ken Davenport with theproducersperspective.com. You know, during the last podcast, we talked a lot about the big blockbuster Broadway shows in comparison to the big blockbuster movies in order to see if there was anything similar about the type of shows that were making it to the top of the charts. I ended the podcast with a comment about how there was an incredible lack of totally original ideas on Broadway. And this week, we're going to talk about that. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was watching Honeymoon in Vegas, the movie, and I had my laptop in front of me, so I took an immediate Twitter poll, asking for a quick thumbs-up or thumbs-down on the idea of making Honeymoon into a musical, which is currently being developed. I was expecting a lot of positive response, actually, uh, but was amazed at what I got back. Here are a few choice quotes. Enough with the 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 from-the-screen-to-the-stage-and-remake crap, please. There are so many amazing new works we can enjoy. I totally agree with the above post in the nicest way possible. Aren't there any original ideas? I think they need to start bringing originality back to Broadway. No more musicals that were movies, unless it's Beetlejuice. These responses were so emotional, I knew I had to address it. So I started to look at history over the last few years. And here's what I found out. Original sounds awesome. And it's what I'd prefer any day of the week, but unfortunately it's not as easy, prevalent, or desired as you might think. This season, there will be only four completely original new musicals on Broadway that were not based on any pre-existing material, movie or otherwise. Can you name them? I'll give you ten seconds. Okay, I gave you two seconds. But it's a podcast, so I can't have too much dead space. Those titles are 13, title of show, the Story of My Life, and The Upcoming Next to Normal. So what do three of those four shows have in common? The three shows that opened already? I'll give you a hint. They all closed. Now, last season, there were only three original musicals on Broadway. In the Heights, Passing Strange, and Glory Days. Heights obviously made it through the rain, but the other two did not. Closed. Quickly. Quickly. Two seasons ago, there were no original new musicals on Broadway. Three years back, two original musicals, In My Life, we all know what happened there, and Drowsy Chaperone. Chaperone obviously worked, not as long as everyone would have liked, but it was a success. Keep Going, four years back, two original musicals again, Brooklyn and Spelling Bee. Now, The Bee was actually based on an improv play, but since the play hadn't achieved any sort of notoriety, we'll include it in this discussion. Yes, Spelling Bee succeeded, but those Brooklyn investors would have been better off buying a bridge. Now, what's interesting about these statistics is not the winners in those sea of losers. I just named 10 shows, two of them recouped. That's consistent with the commonly quoted statistic that one in five shows make money. So we're on par. What's alarming is is that the other eight shows were very quick flameouts, resulting in a loss of the entire capitalization or close to it, and in some cases, maybe more. Now, all of those people that responded to my Twitter poll, knowing these statistics, which obviously indicate that the risk is much, much higher for totally original shows on Broadway, can you really be surprised that producers and writers look to source material before their own brains for ideas? Now, flip the analysis around and look at some of the most successful musicals during that same five-year period. Wicked, Jersey Boys, Lion King, Mamma Mia, and so on with the unoriginals and so on. In fact, look at the longest-running musicals of all time. Only two originals in the top ten. I don't count Old Calcutta. Now, listen, I love an original musical. Falsettos, one of my favorites. But the fact is that their artistic degree of difficulty is exceptionally high. And for those critics out there that are listening, and I know you are, for those of you that scream about the lack of original ideas on Broadway, you should score them like Olympic gymnasts and give them extra points for the attempt. The financial risk is the highest for a totally original idea, and they have a history of lower returns. The truth is, some of those originals I mentioned were simply not very good. And despite the statistical history, a great show can always make this podcast null and void. So anyone dissatisfied with the lack of originality on the Great White Way, including all those people who responded to my poll, should get out there, write a great show, and I'll be the first one to line up and produce it. But we do have to remember that Broadway is a very specific place. It's a very thin slice of real estate in the center of the theatrical world. Producing and creating theater is different from producing and creating Broadway theater. An original just doesn't always work here, whether we like it or not think about it this way. Broadway is like a museum. You know, like MoMA. Unfortunately, not every painter gets his art hung in MoMA, no matter how good they are. It's a museum of modern art. The people that go there go to see a specific type. That's what they want. And the curators have to pick paintings that are not only going to satisfy their audience, but are also going to thrill them. That doesn't mean that painters of all styles should stop painting. It just means that MoMA might not be the place where their art has the best shot of success. You know, interestingly enough, a heck of a lot of painters adapt their images from subjects or landscapes, don't they? So don't blame the curators or the producers or the writers for any lack of originality. If that's what you're looking for, you might just want to pick a different museum. Now, if you're still sticking to your guns and think that what audiences really want is originality, well, we wondered the same thing on 13. And then we tested a tagline that called the show the most original new musical on Broadway. Title of show actually used a similar hook. The results were as follows 6% of those surveyed were definitely interested in the show based on that tagline. 15% were intrigued by the tagline. And 79% of those surveyed said that this tagline, let me repeat it, the most original new musical on Broadway, 79% said that the tagline made them not interested in seeing 13. So maybe that Beetlejuice idea isn't so bad after all. This is Ken Davenport with the theproducersperspective.com.
0: And maybe Ken Davenport didn't want to toot his own horn, but he has also just released a book from the first year of his Producers Perspective's blogs. Uh, you can find out how to order that book by going to our show notes page for the volume 309 show notes at broadwaybullet.com.
4: On the boards.
0: All right. Maybe not Phantom of the Opera, but indeed, some things do get better with age. And there is a new musical opening up on April 2nd called Some Things Get Better With Age. And we have got the executive producer, Sandra Nordgren, here in the studio, with, as well as uh, book and lyrics writer, June Rachelson-Aspa. And, uh, in fact, we got a couple of cast members hanging out to do a little performance uh, for them from the show as well. How the two are you doing?
2: Great, yeah. (laughs) Do
0: you want to introduce yourselves really quick so people can connect the voice with your name?
2: Yes, I'm Sandra Nordgren, executive producer. And I'm June rachelson (coughs) Ospa, book and lyrics.
0: All right, so first off, tell us a little bit about Some Things Get Better With Age.
2: Well, it's a story about three women who are over 50, and it's about reclaiming themselves as powerful goddess women in the world. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how does this translate into music?
2: It's <laughs> um, a musical, correct? Yes, it's a musical. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's kind of it's the way I express myself through song. I've been doing this since 1974, so that's how it ha- happens that it's in musical. And I also met Kezia, so we talked about this little short story that I wrote, which was based on a true story, but I won't tell the details. Um, and uh, we started to write... A song. The first song was "Wham Bam." Thank you, ma'am. Based on our conversation, that first time that we actually got to a piano, and it went from there.
0: <laughs> now you've been in the studio here before, correct? Yes, I have. And uh, was it for a nymph show or
2: no? it Was for was the was Midtown Children's Theater. That's Festival. right. Okay. Yeah, some of those musical
0: festivals, I get such a whirlwind in here that it's... Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, we did three. Sh- we were doing three shows during the summer, and Kezia was our musical director for that as well. And these
7: are also June
2: shows, so they were the festival. Yes, they were the festival. <laughs> <laughs> so what was some of the
0: other impetus behind r- writing Some Things Get Better With Age? And-
2: well, um, this short story was was based on a, three women in a hotel room that we're going through a, a... one of the women was going through a crisis of leaving her husband after forty three years and uh, some interesting things happened between the friends and uh... so this little story called the fudgical came out of it and it was just a twenty little twenty page uh... short story and uh... I showed, I, I showed it to Kezia and I also showed it to the people who were involved in the story And uh, it just developed from there. I mean, it's like, as a writer, I think when you start writing something from something something that's real and from truth, um, it becomes a very strong um, piece to write. It's it it just you're kind of filled with so much energy and wisdom (laughs) because it's coming from a real place.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we can have uh, the cast members here perform. uh one of the songs from the show here right now um, I know we got Kezia Hersey who's the composer here to play piano for them and we can let them introduce themselves but do you want to tell us a little bit about this first song does it need any setup?
2: Uh, well <laughs> getting old really sucks is uh, I would say it's based on what on what really happens
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
2: you don't have to actually you don't have to be a woman to say this I mean I think men feel that too so uh, it's kind of like on that
7: Yes, His kind of song doesn't need a setup. No, not really. It, <laughs> it says still, it all. It does. <laughs> all right,
0: well, let's get everybody in place.
4: I'm Susan McBride and I play Gloria. I'm Stephanie Hepburn and I play
2: Eve.
4: My name is Donna Moore and I play Marilyn. I used to wear falsies, now I'm wearing false teeth. Had my share of nips and tucks. I used to get passes, now I'm passing gases. Getting old really sucks. I used to go walking, now I use a walker and I'm sporting big buttocks. I used to love dogs find- Old really sucks. Once I had a butt, but now it's gone. Well, look at this. Look at these gravity. gravity. Stop it, please. Wearing double chins. They come in threes. Even worse than that, you gotta see my knees. I used to be a hottie, now I get hot flashes. Not feeling like a million bucks. My skin was soft and peachy, now I look like Don Michi. Getting old really sucks Looks like my sex drive is driven away Forget the birds and the bees All I do is pant and knees A double shot of estrogen Your antifreeze Even that won't help me with a Hercules I used to down bourbon Now it's got me burping. It's kicking up my acid reflux I used to be a rocker, now I'm rocking in my rocker. Getting old really sucks. <gasps> Nothing about getting old is delightful.
0: One thing that seems nice about this after, you know, listening to that performance is there's a lot of people that always complain that, you know, there's not enough great, you know, roles for mature women out there. Uh, did you have like a flood of people auditioning for this with, with, uh... we,
2: we had a lot of people <laughs> auditioning. And actually one of the reasons I wanted to write this piece was just also because of that fact, because I do realize that there's a lot of wonderful performers out there that don't have a lot of voice right now. And, they are fantastic, and they really need places to sing and dance and celebrate who they are.
7: And also, I'm a literary manager, and I, I get hundreds of plays in, and there, there are so few of them have roles for women this age. It's just amazing. Where are you two, literary manager at? 13th Street Repertory, and I have mm. my own literary company, Merritt Theater and Film Group.
0: Yeah, I would think this could also have a great life outside of New York. I mean, so many, especially when you get into regional and community theater, there's there's tons of great, talented, you know, ladies of a certain age that, you know, love doing theater and, and great audience support them and not enough material for them to do.
2: Yeah. I'd also like to say um, that a lot of how this is happening is, is because of Sandra. Sandra and I go back, oh, when my kids were small. And, at least 10 years. Yeah, at least 10 years. And uh, <clears throat> I've been around 13th Street Rep for a long time and always sending actors and people over there to get started when they come to New York. And, um Sandra's been very supportive of my work all these years, and uh, and she's made this she, she's made this possible. And actually, she was the one who sent Kesia mm. uh, <laughs> to uh, call me, and that's how we met through Sandra. So yeah, uh,
7: Kezia is an extraordinary talent, and I and so is June. And I knew if they hooked up together, that we'd have something magical come out of it, and it it happened. So but so I, you
0: actually helped drive the conception of yes. the the show itself too. Yeah.
7: And when, when I heard this, I was doubled over laughing. This is such a funny piece, and it's very poignant, and it's written so well. And we get a lot of musicals in at the Rep, and we don't do many musicals because many of them need a lot of work. This one didn't. I mean, this is, we're, we're doing a workshop production to help develop it further because this is the kind of musical that really could go to Broadway. And we, we want to we support it, and uh, we're thrilled, so... I can't wait to see this up. I really can. not
0: So, uh, on that note, we got the cast ready to perform another number from the show. Does this song need any setup?
2: No. This is oh oh, oh the the the, the, the <laughs> oh the the, 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 the second, second song. song. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, the second song um, is about um, eHarmony date, like dating, online dating.
0: D- did they pay? Is this is this product placement?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. No, it's not. But it's a very positive, uh, I'd say, we're, we're really giving them and, you know, honoring them and what they're doing for, for the dating community. And um, I think it's a good plug for them.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's get the cast assembled and Keezy Hersey back on the piano and we'll hear the song.
4: When I sent my profile in the widow thing was wearing thin Too many years I stayed depressed It was time to get undressed Shed the tears and shed the gloom, Get up and You can share the music in a love love symphony symphony. Don't you sing together, tops the chart. The harmony the harmony Everything is better when you're in harmony With someone you can love with all your heart I took a chance to find a man Seymour, Bob, and maybe Stan Then I dated Murphy Paul Rodney, Jack, I had a ball Now I'm gonna grab the chance To wine and dine, taste sweet romance Now I get to pick and choose I've got no time to sing the blues With e-harmony, e-harmony Share the music in a the love symphony. Don't you sing together? Top the chart. Be harmony, be harmony. Be Everything harmony. is better when you're in harmony with, with someone you can love with all your heart. Now, now it's time to be the great composer a melody that's right for you. You'll be swinging and singing today.
0: So the show opens uh, April 2nd, and how long does it run?
7: Through the 26th.
0: <laughs> and where can people go to get more information on all of this? Uh,
7: they can go to 13thstreetrep.org. That's 1-3-T-H, streetrep.org, or they can get tickets at theatermania.com.
0: All right, any upcoming projects from the 13th Street Rep or, uh, oh, or you God. as a writer, June, that you want to quickly mention?
7: Oh, we have so many. Uh, well, right now we're we're going to be closing a fantastic play called Conversation with a Clegal. We held it over two more weeks. A uh, black reporter who looks completely white, true story, who, who infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan back in the 1920s. And, um, and then after that we have... Uh, June's and Kesey's play, uh, musical. And then after that, we have uh, resident playwright Terrence Patrick Hughes uh, with Finding the Rooster. And after that, fabulous play coming in called Ruby's Story about D-Day in 1944 here on a
2: truck farm in the U.S. and what people go through when their loved ones are in war. And um, during the same week that Something's Get Better With Age is opening, I have two shows opening from the festival from the summer Opening in San Antonio. I have Rapunzerella White, which is a dysfunctional fairy tale, opening at the Woodlawn Theater and with a twenty two person cast, and the True Colors of Weedle is opening at the Harlequin. And then Rapunzerella White is gonna be going as well to Hackensack, New Jersey next year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So for those listeners outside of New York, if you're in San Jose or is a place you can San check Antonio. That out? Oh, San Antonio, sorry. <laughs> I heard the sand. I, uh, the rest of it kind of disappeared in my mind. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Sandra Nordgren and June Rachelson ospra thank you so much for coming by to talk about Some Things Get Better with Age. Uh, hopefully, you can check it out. Sounds like a lot of fun. And again, thanks to Kezia Hersey and the cast for coming down to do a, a couple great performances from the show. And best of luck with your run. Thank,
7: thank you. you. too. Thank yeah. You. <laughs>
1: Side. Hey, this is once again Marty Cooper on the positive side. I've been out for a few weeks. I've been busy. I've been doing a lot on Broadway, a lot of ushering and stuff like that. And... To the people that listen that have gotten to me saying, how do you become an usher and everything like that, and I haven't gotten back to you, please forgive me if you're listening. I will get back to you. I've been busy. Uh, once again, if you have any opinions or if you want to say something to me or just hi, uh, it's Marty at AOL.com. Uh, I've been ushering around. I've actually paid to see some shows. I saw Hair a few weeks ago. Uh, I loved it. I liked it better than the original. I thought it's livelier. and it involves the audience a little more. and uh, The cast is charismatic. The music, as usual, is great. So I, I enjoyed it a lot. The leads, Jim Swenson and uh, Gavin Creel, are great. Actually, that night, I saw outside the theater James Rado and... I actually got him to sign to sign my program. I'm a pup that way. What can I do? I'm looking forward to uh, the show next to normal. I enjoy Alice Ripley's work all the time. Uh, the off Broadway version didn't get didn't get great reviews, but uh, I understand it's traveled around and it's picked up some steam. It's been reworked. Uh, I'm looking forward to that production, also to seeing Rock of Ages uh, in its in its Broadway incarnation. Uh, in my travels, also I've seen Blithe Spirits. Oh no, I'm not talking about a musical. I can't believe it. Uh, but actually, it plays like a musical. Uh, it's in a musical house. Actually, my only problem with the show is uh, the Schubert is a one of those gargantuan Schubert houses, uh, and sitting up in the balcony, I think you missed some of the adorable quips uh, coming out of people's mouths in the show. But whatever I saw of it when I wasn't on my break or when I wasn't uh, upstairs, or uh, I enjoyed a lot. I think Angela Lansbury as usual is great. Uh, Jane Atkinson is fantastic. Uh, Rupert Everett is is, is terrific, uh, how much good can I say about this show? Uh, and I enjoyed Christine episode a lot as the ghost. What I really enjoy about this show is uh, uh, there are a lot of scenes uh, and between each scene the curtain comes down and like they project like silent movie type uh, captions and during this time You're listening to recordings of Christine Ebersole singing, much like she sounded in Grey Gardens, singing some Noel Coward songs, among others. Uh, And that's a really cute touch to the show. I enjoy it. If you want to have a nice, uh, sophisticated night in the theater, you might want to try going to see that. Um, I am on my way tonight to uh, uh, City Center, uh, and they are doing a revival of Finian's Rainbow with uh, Cheyenne Jackson and Kate Baldwin. Finian's Rainbow boasts one of the great theater scores of all time by Burton Lane and Yip Uh You have songs like How Are Things in Glockamora, Look to the Rainbow, If This Isn't Love, uh, Great Come and Get a Day, uh, If You're Not Near the Girl You Love. Love the, one, love the Girl You're With, or whatever the name of that song is. <laughs> but it's a great, great score, uh, and from what I see, has a wonderful cast. Uh, so if you can get in to see it, from what I understand, it's selling pretty well. If you can get in, uh, you might enjoy that, that night in the theater. Uh, one other thing I have to say on the negative side. Uh, it's happening again. I I didn't read all the reviews of Impressionism, but uh, everybody was biting at the bit to say bad things about it, and for the most part, it didn't get great reviews. So, aren't we all happy that a play might not have a life on Broadway? I just had to say that because uh, people must be gloating all over the place. Garden Carnage got good reviews, and that, will prob- that might win Best Play. Uh, of course, with Mary Stewart up there, uh, there's a lot of great word about that. We're not sure. In any case, I love doing what I'm doing, and once again, I'll repeat it again. I'm, I'm in a theater just about every night, and, uh, and I could report a lot to you people. Uh, so uh, once again, uh, if you have any opinions or want to say anything or just hi, Uh, Email me at BroadwayMarty at AOL.com. I'm going to stay on the positive side.
4: On the boards.
0: The production company is a company that likes to specialize in uh, exchanging plays between Australian and U.S. audiences and artists. And after coming off the very successful show, The Most Damaging Wound, they are now presenting Love. So, we have artistic director of the production company, Mark Armstrong, and actress in love, Bronwyn Coleman, here to talk about the show. How are you guys doing? Hi, good. How are you? Good. Uh, sorting things out using a new mic for a moment here because uh, <laughs> having a couple technical difficulties with the other one. Um, first off, I guess uh, the first thing would be to talk about the current show that's opening uh, March 20th,
3: Love. What, what is the show about? A Little Bit About Love, which is a new Australian play by a writer named Patricia Cornelius. It centers around Annie, who is a young prostitute who, while she's in jail, falls into a lesbian relationship with Bronwyn's character. And And then does she sing The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow?
11: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, actually, you know,
3: we thought we'd have a little bit for everybody. That's right.
11: (laughs) Music, dancing, prostitution, (laughs) heroin. (laughs) Yeah. And as as
3: Bronwyn alludes to, um, Tanya's character, Bronwyn's character, Tanya, is a pretty hardcore junkie. And their relationship both focuses on sort of the powerful feelings of love that they feel as well as also the sort of depths of addiction. And the relationship between the sort of powerful need that both of those things generate. And the play becomes a little more complicated when a character named Lorenzo, who is a male, sort of drifter character that we never learn much about in terms of a backstory, but we know that he attaches himself onto this this duo of women. And the three of them sort of form a love triangle of sorts, again, that is mixed in with these feelings of love and feelings of, of being intoxicated, either with love or with drugs. So how did you find the show? I I know you work a lot with Australian plays. How did did you stumble across this particular show? Initially, um, uh, a great colleague and friend of mine named Ben Ellis, who we've produced a couple plays by, recommended this play to me several years ago, actually. And we had wanted to do it for one of our seasons and never really had sort of the right combination of people to put together that we thought could pull it off. And the play actually went on to receive several productions. It's had four productions in Australia, which for a country of that size is pretty unusual in terms of the professional theater. So this play has had a lot of exposure over there, and we wanted to bring it over here. And this season, you know, we kind of said, okay, we're going to put it on the season. We're going to roll the dice, and hopefully the right people will come together. Which thankfully they have, and we couldn't be more excited about the cast. And oh, you're just really saying that because one of them's sitting right next to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right.
11: I'll beat him up later if he doesn't.
0: <laughs> so Bronwyn, what, what what attracted you to this show?
11: Well, it's a really amazing script. Actually, when you see it, you'll see <laughs> it's a, it's a really dense, in-depth kind of exploration of these themes that Mark was talking about, and it's a, it's the, all three parts of, of these very meaty. Um, challenges it's a really amazing play and also I have to say that I never work as an Australian in New York <laughs> so <laughs> I always work as another another nationality so let's hear your best well. American
3: accent for oh, a second oh god
11: but, I never do it on demand <laughs> <laughs> I never do it on demand
3: <laughs> it's like a singer you can't ask <laughs> him to do it <laughs>
11: <laughs> well it always comes out kind of half-assed when I'm like argh, argh, argh. people are like that's awful and I'm like no, no, I can do it better than that it's ah. <laughs>
0: So the, I guess
3: that brings up a point. How Australian is this play love? I think that the themes of the play are are pretty universal, but yeah. you could probably speak to the Australian specific quality of the play.
11: Yeah, well, I mean, the themes are definitely universal. In terms of the language and the the um I yeah, well, the language and the sort of culture of the play, I think is very Australian. It's for me it's it's fantastic and it's been really great to work with Americans and to, to sort of talk about what the cultural differences are and um, and sort of have that exploration together. It's been really great.
0: And what what have been some of those points that you've seen that people are, you know, in, that Americans maybe have the most difficulty grasping or the things that are most in line together?
11: Well, this play is, is about a very specific um, socioeconomic group in Australia that's maybe not what, we, what you'd immediately associate with your vision of Australia, like the koalas and the Sydney Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And this is like the the bottom rung of the ladder in terms of these people are really struggling very hard to get by. And, um, yeah, yeah. So, so you, I think you don't see a lot of that side of Australia outside of Australia. I, you know, I am familiar with it having grown up there and, um, you know, moved in and out of various circles in my life, but... Um, I, I think that doesn't – you don't see that much outside of Australia, that aspect of the culture.
0: Now, the, the production company, Mark, you focus a lot on Australian works, right? We do, yes. I mean, is it pretty much
3: exclusively or, or just a lot? We do. Uh, we do. We try to do 50 percent Australian works and 50 percent American works. And the way that that came about was my wife, Nicole, is Australian and had been wanting to do sort of Australian plays in New York for a long time. and. For sort of the beginning period of when we were together, I said, oh, that's really a great thing. You should do that. But I can't be involved in that because I don't know anything about Australian plays. <laughs> and the longer we were together, I began to learn not only about Australia as a country, but about the, the great playwriting that has been coming out of Australia for the last 50 years, and particularly contemporary playwrights. I mentioned Ben Ellis and Patricia is another one who were writing things that, although they were rooted in this very sort of specific Australian-ness, really appealed to me in terms of connecting with them very deeply in a way that was sort of personal and political, which is something that, which is something that I really appreciate about Australian playwriting, which is the ability of the best writers to have a sort of psychological, realistic component to their work and also have a political resonance Mm -hmm. seemingly sort of embedded within the same text. In America, I think we tend to think of, oh, so-and-so is sort of a realistic psychological character writer, and -and so-and-so is a political writer, almost as if those things are mutually exclusive. And what I admired about so many of these Australian playwrights is they seem to instinctively recognize that life had a political component to it, Mm. and politics had a human component to it. And sort of the integration of those things was what I like about the best playwrights from any country, and it was what I found with Australian work in particular. Now I'm going to really, vastly, grossly oversimplify this, but there's a lot of you
0: know, there's a lot of parallels between Australia and the U- U.S. The U.S. was largely originally made out of religious outcasts from Britain, and Australia largely made up of criminal outcasts <laughs> from, from <Aye>. Britain. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who's who could be another podcast. Discussion. <laughs> um, but. What I'm surprised about is there seems to be, we get tons of British imports always in film and plays all the time, but it, it seems like a lot of times, at least over in America, of course, that I think we don't see a whole lot of the British voice in uh, playwriting and, and even film so much. There seemed to be like a boom kind of period in the mid 90s where a lot of Australian pil- films were coming over here and doing like, you know, middling business for, you know, small independent kind of stuff, but. I haven't seen as much of that recently, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you see any reasons why America seems to have a harder time embracing the Australian artistic canon versus the British.
11: Well, I mean, I, I think it's it's got a lot to do with actually how much product Australia puts out. Australia's got a really small population. There's only about 23, 24 million people in Australia, which is, and, and the country is huge. So it's a very sort of underpopulated country. And there's not a lot of funding for uh, Australian productions and it also, I mean, not to get too political about it, but it depends who happens to be in government at the time. And there's been a a fairly conservative government that's recently changed, in the last couple of years it's changed, but but prior to that there was a fairly conservative government in power who I understand didn't give a lot of funding to the arts. So that kind of affected the the output of Australian product. So it's probably a combination of the fact that... um, you know, we're a sort of a smaller country and we're not necessarily going to make a big splash all the time in, in a, a place as, uh, as huge and, and with so many options and so many entertainment options as America. And then also the, the fact that we just weren't putting out as much product as we had been. There had been a lot more funding for the arts and funding for Australian films.
3: What's really interesting is sort of a catch-22 that I've talked about with My wife, Nicole, which is that because Australians had become used to there being government funding and subsidized theater much like there is in Great Britain and like there is not nearly as much of here, which was great. But then when that sort of started to get taken away under a more conservative government, they didn't have a tradition of private philanthropy Mm -hmm. like we've had to develop here. Right. So – as I understand it, that was part of the struggle in the, in the early Howard years, was to convince people to privately give to the arts.
11: Right, right. Yeah.
3: Yeah, so yeah, it's still a struggle, even when
0: the people have gotten accustomed to it.
11: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely.
0: So what, what have been some of the other notable uh, Australian pieces that you've put up in
3: the past few years? Uh, we did a wonderful play by Ben Ellis called Falling Petals, which was one of the first Australian plays that I, that I fell in love with. And then we did this interesting series for a couple of years called The Australia Project. We had 13 American playwrights all write a play that was somehow inspired by Australia. Great writers, Steve Belber, Betty Shamia, Liz Merriweather, a whole crew of really great playwrights, some of whom had traveled through Australia like Kate Moore or Ryan had and sort of wrote a play that was sort of inspired by that experience. And some people like Courtney Barron who had – sort of dreamed about Australia and koalas and Olivia Newton-John when she was a little kid and said, can I write a play about that? (laughs) And we said, sure. So we had sort of a a real diversity of American playwrights and encouraging them to explore Australia and what it meant to have a relationship with a country that was so far away. And then the following year, we did the reverse. We had Australian playwrights that all wrote a play that was somehow inspired by the United States or was about the United States, about the United States-Australia relationship. And it provided an opportunity for... Us to get to know really a lot of the great writers on both sides of the world, and for them to get to know us as well.
0: So now, uh, in the press release, I know as I it mentioned that you you know like to promote an exchange. Is there like some sort of quid pro quo, quo or retro or or somebody over in
3: Australia that is like doing some of the stuff that you're putting on here? Or that's what we'd like to do as part of sort of a long-term plan. Is eventually in addition to doing the American premiere of these great Australian plays is we're creating new American work that we would like to travel over there and share in some way, whether or not that's through a partnership with another company or whether or not that's through actual travel and touring. Because it's a little different, whereas we get very little Australian content. They do get American plays. Mm. Some people would say they even get too many American plays. But my experience was that they tended to sort of get the greatest hits of playwriting, like Doubt or... You know, those sorts of plays will come there. And a sort of drilling down further into playwriting about what it meant to be an American at this particular time is something that I'm sort of passionate about sharing. Now, Bronwyn, uh, while... There may not be a whole
0: lot of Australian plays and stuff coming over here. There is certainly no shortage of Australian actors. Right. In fact, that is one area where I would guess, if statistically numerically, there's probably in America more successful Australian actors than, <laughs> than American actors. Just uh, you know, it, it seems that way.
11: Yeah, uh, there's definitely a lot of Australian actors here again because the industry in Australia is so small. A lot of what we see on our screens on TV and also in the theaters is American product. Um, but – and so there's so little Australian products that the Australian actors kind of, you know, don't have anywhere to work. <laughs> so, so a lot of them will spend some time in Australian soaps in Australia or, or doing as much theatre as they can and then come to the U.S. so that they can, you know, work.
0: So what I'm wondering if you've seen as a is there some sort of like Australian mafia here in America? And, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean in terms of is there like a support group for Australian actors and, and they, where you guys really help each other out or is it just kind of sheer pluck and luck that – so many Australian actors seem to do decently here. Um,
11: well, th- actually, Mark's company is really, <laughs> really great. Is <laughs> um, really great for that. But there are groups uh, like Advance Australia, um, which are sort of Australian professionals net- networking groups. And it's not, they're not specifically for artists, but they're kind of for all professionals, Australian professionals in New York. And... Um, other than that i mean we we kind of know each other cuz you sort of do see the same people at auditions all the time <laughs> but um but yeah yeah you sort of you sort of find your own network but maybe there's room for for us to start a you know a group a support group
0: and and for you what was your choice was there a big dilemma between choosing between la and new york or or was it a clear cut choice for you and why
11: well, for me, I, I actually came here to study and I, I went to... I was going to a very specific school that I wanted to go to. So, um, and then when I was in school, I met my husband, who's based in New York. So <laughs> so I sort of wound up in New York. But um, I love New York and I love everything that's going on here. I love that there's companies like Marx, you know, that have embraced this really specific kind of um, aspect of theatre, you know, and are bringing it to life. In New York, it's amazing. Yeah.
0: And, and on, a, on a sillier question, Mark, the, the, your production company is named The Production Company, <laughs> and I'm curious to how many
3: who's-on-first type of discussions this leads to. You know, we started in 2004 when there was a real there was a real discussion going on in the theater community about how can new plays get produced. I found myself in a quagmire of wanting to, wanting to direct new plays and being passionate about championing them and winding up directing readings, directing workshops, directing 10-minute plays – The group 13P sort of came out of that time too, which is groups that basically came together and said, how can new plays get produced? And that was sort of the reason for our simple name was that we felt like a lot of people that were sort of saying they were supporting new plays were getting bogged down in development and not really bringing the plays to an audience. For me, seeing a new play sort of in a reading of theater industry, people coming to see it, is really only a first step for a play. And what we wanted to do is to see new plays in full productions
0: yeah, it's a common theme. I definitely hear over and over on on Broadway Bulletin. and hopefully some of the industry will kind of change because I feel the same way that right now New York is stuck in development hell and, and too many shows are getting quote unquote developed into the ground. Right. yeah <laughs> <laughs> so that's it's good to know you're promoting um, So any other
3: parting shots you'd like to get out on Love? Love opens on March 20th and runs through April 12th at Center Stage New York on 21st Street. You can visit our website, www.productioncompany.org, to book tickets, which are $20. You can try to get them at the door. You'll have better luck earlier in the run. Our last show, The Most Damaging Wound, we were selling out by the end of the run, so I encourage people to come early and come often, lest they be turned away. (laughs) All right. Sounds like you got that spiel down. <laughs> <laughs>
11: That's
0: off the top of my head. I don't know what you're yeah. talking about.
11: <laughs> I've never heard him say that before. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, Bronwyn Coleman and Mark Armstrong, I thank you so much for coming down to talk uh, about in love pleasure. And the production yeah, thank company. You. Thank
11: you. Thank you. Curtain Call.
0: Well, that wraps up Volume 309 of Broadway Bullet for March 26, 2009. Again, if you're looking for more information on any of the shows or anything we talked about here, you can go to our show notes page at broadwaybullet.com and just look under podcast notes for Volume 309. We'll be back. We're doing this twice a month, every second and fourth Thursday of the month. So stay tuned for a new episode. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and once again, thanks for hopping on board, The Broadway Bullet. All the hairs went up on the back
1: of my neck. The Broadway Bullet this is really We're starved, so Chimaudi should an audition
4: come up, we are so ready and rearing.
8: So Jake Casas is my name, and I'm in the can.
7: Actually, the barfay
0: thing comes from my whole life. People just going, So it didn't take much, though, when you Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews... You know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution.